You're listening to The Gulf Stream, where we talk to fascinating guests that want to make the Gulf of Mexico, and moreover, the world, a more sustainable and more beautiful place. Don't worry about getting bogged down in scientific jargon or academic lecturing. On The Gulf Stream, we break down complex ideas into simple yet intriguing subjects that will help you be more informed and perhaps inspire you to create a better environment for all of us. After all, it takes people like you to make a difference in some of the toughest issues facing the Earth today. Welcome to the Gulf Stream. This is Megan Radke, Communications Coordinator at the Heart Research Institute for Gulf of Mexico Studies at Texas A&M University Corpus Christi. While normally I work behind the scenes as a producer on the Gulf Stream, for this episode, I sat down behind the microphone for a conversation with Dr. Keisha Barr. Keisha is an assistant professor of marine biology at Texas A&M University Corpus Christi, an HRI fellow, a coral reef ecologist, and an all-around fascinating person. In this episode, Keisha and I talk about her work and why everyone should care about coral reefs. We celebrate National Women in Science Day. We talk about a new book she co-authored, and we even discuss diving and some of her most memorable experiences while working in the field. I hope you enjoy the episode. Dr. Keisha Barr, thank you so much and, and for coming today and welcome to the Gulfstream podcast. So um, I'll introduce myself. I'll get started because our viewers and our listeners probably don't know me. Mm -hmm. um, normally I'm sitting behind the scenes in one of those chairs over there, mm -hmm. but my name is Megan Radke. I'm the communications coordinator here at HRI um, Heart Research Institute for Gulf of Mexico Studies. Say the full name there. Um, so yeah, like I said, normally I'm behind the scenes. Um, <laughs> I've got I've got a background in, in communications. I've got a bachelor's in journalism. I've got a master's in agriculture. So I'm not a scientist. Mm -hmm. I am not a marine scientist, but I can communicate the science. So mm -hmm. there very well may be a point today when I'm like, hey, Keisha, you've, you've got to explain this to me like I'm five, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, But I would love it if you can um, just introduce yourself and, and tell yeah. our viewers and listeners a little bit about what you do. Yeah. So I'm Keisha Barr. I have a PhD in actually zoology. Oh, very cool. Right? I know. Yeah. Um, but everything I study is underwater. In particular, I study coral reefs and more recently studying how other things are growing, such as oysters. Um, I'm from a very small town in Ohio okay. and made my way to Florida, then Hawaii, and now in Texas. Awesome. So I'm really excited to be here. Uh, also, I think what's really fun is... I am the first person in my family to leave my small town Aww. and also the first person to go to college, too. Okay. See, yeah. now this is cool. We already have something in common because I'm you were the, also the first. Also the first. Yeah. I'm from a very small town in Texas near Waco, so oh, okay. no one's ever heard of it. But definitely the first from, from my family to, you know, venture out, get a master's mm -hmm. and, you know, to say that I'm working in, in science communications at this point, they're kind of like... Where did this come from? Were they like, but, does science need communicated? Yeah, exactly, exactly, right. But yeah, um, so that's that's really cool. So I know that you've so you you just said you you work with coral, mm -hmm. um, and you've got got your lab um, just right across the road on campus here. So tell us a little bit about what you guys do in the bar lab. Yeah, uh, well, so when I was doing a lot of my my research training, I was under the impression that research is only for research. So when I established my own lab, I kind of wanted to have research with a purpose mm -hmm. and having multiple purposes. So we mostly focused on coral reefs, but other foundational species such as oysters. And the goal of our lab is to really produce 
information and science that is going to help guide management or conservation or restoration practices. So of course we do a lot of the hard science that you typically think of, but we also do a lot of the applied science and communications of the science that we do as well. Okay, very cool. So, yeah, because it's not just all science. It's We need to yeah. actually implement the science that we're doing. Yeah, most definitely. And we need to, you know, make sure that that science is, is clear to those audiences that we're trying to communicate mm -hmm. to and right. so they can find a way to relate to it. But we'll get back to we'll get back to that, we'll get to that, that later. Yeah. I want to dive mm -hmm. into that further. But, you know, you were showing us around your lab yesterday mm -hmm. and I heard you say, I mean, so many interesting things. But one thing that I really caught on to is you called coral an animal. And so I don't think I don't think a lot of people think of coral that way. Like most people probably see, you know, really colorful corals and think like, oh, it's it's a plant or, you know, they mm -hmm. might think it's some type of rock or something like that. So corals an animal. Like, yeah, I like to actually call them snotty rocks. Snotty rocks. Snotty rocks. Okay. Yeah, because okay. if you pick them up out of the water, which please I don't recommend people do, but yeah. they do have a mucus and it looks like a snotty rock. Okay. <laughs> but yes, they are animals. And the really cool thing, they're like very complex, complicated animals because they are itself an animal, but inside of the tissues, they have algae that live inside oh. of them and help them grow. And at the same time, they do produce a calcium carbonate skeleton. So they are a rock as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So they're really complicated, but they're also really fascinating because they build these structures that we can even see from space. But the actual animal is very, very tiny. It's only a millimeter too thick wow. that is actually living on a coral skeleton. Wow. Yeah. So it's, it's insane because they are animals. People think that they're just colorful rocks mm -hmm. or snotty rocks, like I mentioned. But they're actually extremely important for our ecosystems. And a lot of the things that we have or we like to do or eat is because of coral reefs. So that's that leads me right into my next question. So, you know, coral reefs, people may not be able to see them, mm -hmm. you know, and that's that goes with a lot of things in the ocean, right? right? It's a lot of things that we can't see that we don't know that's there. So people may be asking like, well, why, why should we care about it? Or, um, you know, what does it, what does it do? What does it do good for the earth? And what, what does it do good for our ecosystems? Mm -hmm. So maybe you could elaborate a little bit about why coral is important. Yeah. And I think that's something that's really hard to communicate with some people when mm -hmm. they live far from the ocean too, is because they don't see that direct connection of how things in the ocean benefit people on land. Mm -hmm. And when we think about where our food comes from, there's not really a, always a connection of, Hey, that did come from the ocean and at some point that animal did live on a coral reef mm, so that mm -hmm. that is what we think about and the importance that we talk about with corals is that at one point corals are supporting some animals that we do take or some resources that we do take from our oceans okay and in more of our coastal areas they do provide a natural barrier so when we think of mangroves and how they might help reduce the amount of wave action mm -hmm. or oyster reefs as well corals do the same in island communities or in florida um closer a little bit closer to the mainland here also, a lot of the different uh, medicines that we have have come from coral reefs. Really? Yeah. It's, it's very interesting because we have all of these resources that come from corals. They support nearly a quarter of all of our marine life and a lot of things that we do rely on in every day. And, and of course, we get some of our medicines as well. And some people just don't understand where these things come from because we do just go to the store and pick them up. Sure. But they are very yeah. important. And also they're important for tourism. If you think about it, that's we like okay. to, at least I like to go somewhere that's warm and has really clear waters. And alongside that, we do have coral reefs that are associated in those warm, clear water areas, which make really good diving, really good snorkeling, and also other water activities such as surfing. Yeah. Hard to go surfing if you don't have a reef to help break up that water and to create make that a wave. wave. Yeah. Exactly. 
Okay. Yeah. Very cool. I mean, that's, you know, it's, it's, it's a lot easier. And, and this is something that I worked with and dealt with a lot. Mm -hmm. um, I previously worked um, as a press officer for Texas Parks and Wildlife, and I worked with the Wildlife Division. And, you know, um, a lot of our messaging kind of centered around um, conservation and, and hunting activities, as well as fishing. And so mm -hmm. fishing something we, we talk about a lot here at HRI. And, and it becomes really interesting when you are able to make that connection between like, you know, like you said, with medicines and coral between your food and fish and oysters and all of these things and how they interact and why that, you know, they're they're so important to, right. to us and, and our ways of life. And so it's not something that we should by any means take for granted. So. Right. And it is a little bit harder if we are so far away from corals. Yeah. But, you know, something I, I'm assuming we'll talk about is that we do have corals that are relatively close to us. And yeah. we do rely on those sources. And just making that connection and having some more information or knowledge about that or even being able to see it will make the world of a difference. Because mm -hmm. the first time I saw a coral reef underwater, I was like, what Mind the blown. heck? <laughs> I, I, thought, I actually thought people were hiding this from me. I was like, "What? Wow. how do I not know about this? Because yeah. it wasn't part of my education growing up. Like there's these underwater cities that exist that are beautiful and very noisy. And how do we not know? Like, how did I not know about it? Very noisy. Okay, what what kind of noises are going on? Oh, in the so many. Well, so it depends on where you are. Okay. But a lot of the noises that we hear on reefs are typically from the, re the reefs, the fish either eating some of the coral okay. or eating some algae on top of the the substrate or the the, the bottom of the coral reef. Um, also, we hear a lot of snapping shrimp making noises. Mm. The fish are really noisy. And, and it's really important that these reefs are noisy because it's indicating a really healthy system. Sure. Yeah. But then also, depending on where you are, you might hear other things such as like dolphins or whales as well, wow. um, which is really beautiful to hear underwater. So it's extremely imagine. noisy underwater. And, and that was part of it. It's like a bustling underwater city so that cool. I just felt like why aren't my why am I not learning about this? Mm -hmm. Like I need to know more about this. We and explore this. We yeah. need to explore it and, and tell more people about it too. Well, so, so you know, a little a little bit of a segue here. You mm -hmm. you mentioned also when we were in the lab yesterday, and it's just kind of digging down deeper into the world of coral. You mentioned that you guys examine the DNA of coral, mm -hmm. and so you know that that kind of blew my mind as well because it's not coral is a lot different than you know like certain other organisms and species where you can just draw blood or like you can take a nautilith from a fish and age it that way but coral you can extract dna from coral that's mm -hmm. amazing yeah yeah because corals are animals so they have dna mm -hmm. and the really hard thing about working with corals well, there's a lot of hard things, but when we talk about the DNA of coral, we also have to talk about the DNA of the algae. Mm. And alongside the algae, the coral has this microbiome, we call it, of these bacteria and fungi and viruses that are associated with it, too. So you kind of have to know a little bit more about that whole organism. We, we like to call it a holobiont because mm. it's not just the coral. It's the coral, the algae, the, the bacteria. It's everything. it's everything together. So it's it's essentially its own little community. And you need to be able to understand what that community looks like and that composition of that, of all those things together. So we try to separate the coral by itself, the algae by itself, and then get some measurements of the microbiome too, or the, the bacterial communities. How do you well. do that? I mean, is it, can you like describe that or is it a process that we would just have to see? <laughs> well, some of it we can and like physically separate the mm -hmm. coral from its algae, which sounds really, um, I don't know, it kind of sounds a little evil, yeah, like right. separating yeah. it. Um, but also there's different DNA techniques that we can take in terms of targeting certain sequences in okay. the DNA structure that will tell us a little bit more about the algae versus about the coral versus the, the bacterial communities. And that's just based on the 
traits that are only characteristic and um, relative to that organism that we're looking at. So that's, you know, getting into the technical side of things. But sometimes, so simple, we remove the tissue from the coral and we just spin it down and we can separate the the zooxanthellae or the algae in the coral from each other. It sounds very, like I said, evil, like (laughs) <laughs> like taking something from this critter, yeah, right? Right. Yeah. No, but that's 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 fascinating, and I just I couldn't stop thinking about that after you mentioned it yesterday. Coral yeah. DNA. Coral DNA. It's so cool. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm sure your your students just kind of they're they're in heaven when they're in there and having a great time. Yeah. Well, the th- the reason why we do the DNA of corals is because. Their corals are really complicated in terms of how they grow their structures. And some of them grow and look exactly the same, but they're different species. Mm. And so it's it becomes really hard to know if we look at this coral and it looks like this, but it also looks like this one. Mm-hmm. Are they the same species or not? And we can look at the DNA to determine if they are different species or not. Okay. And that helps us understand what that species diversity is, like how many corals do we have in the Caribbean or the Gulf Mm -hmm. versus how many are in the Pacific. And also what potentially we might see happening as our waters are changing are some species better at dealing with changes in the water compared to other species. I want to come back to that thought, but... You mentioned at the beginning that um, you lived in Hawaii mm-hmm. and you've got quite an extensive background in Hawaii. And I know that you guys still do some some trips um, to Hawaii and, and in the Pacific. Mm-hmm. So my only exposure to Hawaii at this point in my life, unfortunately, I'll, I'll get there one day. But my only exposure, you know, is shows like Meat Eater and and like watching things about kayak fishing and spearfishing. Um, Kimmy, Kimmy Warner is, uh-huh. is very much a hero mm-hmm. of mine. So. Everybody out there, if you don't know Kimmy Warner, please Google Kimmy Warner. Um, but so that's my only exposure to Hawaii, and it looks like such a paradise. So I I would just like to know, like, I love Texas. I'm from Texas. Mm-hmm. But how did you make that transition from, you know, Hawaii to here? Yeah, I, I think that's like the, the really interesting thing about the time I spent in Hawaii, because I think the biggest thing I gained from that living there for nearly a decade, actually over a decade, was learning how to live with the land instead of on the land and really be more of a community oriented since you're limited in the amount of space Mm -hmm. that you have. Everyone kind of works together in order to make the use best use of that space that you have. So when I left Hawaii and came here, I was like, first of all, I had no idea Texas was this big. That was my first (laughs) thing. Like, how is Texas, how does it take like 14 hours sometimes just to get out of Texas? That was my, and and, in Hawaii, we would only drive, the maximum you could drive was like 45 minutes. Wow. So that was my biggest adjustment for for that. Yeah, that's huge. Um, But, you know, making that transition and coming back to the mainland, as we call it in Hawaii, is, was really actually rewarding for me because I felt so privileged to be able to live so close to coral reefs and learn about them and study them. And when I came here to this university, I began to realize not everyone has been so fortunate as I was. And I was really excited to bring corals a little bit closer to people here and be able to, to show them that, hey, this may seem like it's really far away, but it is really important that we all understand how we still can impact corals, even though that we feel like we're far away from them. Sure. I mean, have you, from your work there and, mm-hmm. and now working here and getting to explore areas like the Flower Garden Banks, like how do corals, do, Tex, do Texas corals and corals in the Gulf, do they face kind of the same issues that, that you were seeing in the Pacific? You know, what's really interesting, I have been really fortunate to go to some of the most remote places where only a handful of people have been able to go dive on these reefs. And 
one of the things that we have continuously seen is regardless of where you are, you can be thousands of miles away from people or the nearest city, and you can still see impacts of humans in those areas. A lot of the problems that we are seeing were per um, plastic pollution. Okay. Yeah. So even though we've been to the most remote places, we are still seeing impacts. And when I came to Texas and learned more about the flower gardens, my first question is, okay, well, what kind of impacts have we seen there? And one of the things that I learned was that, one, the flower garden banks are amazing, and the sanctuary that's been developed around it has been very, very effective and really, really important for preserving this really unique ecosystem. But then second, a lot of us a thought that it was so far away and so removed from the, the mainland here that it was protected and is also very deep. So it was unlikely to be influenced by humans or runoff from land or warming that could potentially happen. Mm -hmm. And now we're learning more and more as our oceans are changing that all of our ecosystems are experiencing some impact and the flower gardens is one of those. And now we're really concerned about how do we continuously preserve these ecosystems, even though they are remote, but they are still being impacted. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people just still don't know that those reefs are there. And we really need to do what we can to help preserve them so more and more people and future generations can see them. Yeah, most definitely. I mean, people will work hard to take care of something that they understand and right. they've seen mm -hmm. and, you know, that they that they know something about. So it's definitely worth it to keep spreading the word about these really special places. Mm -hmm. And you had mentioned, I think, yesterday that some of the corals that you saw in the flower gardens were like, what did you say, the size of a minivan, yeah. something like that? Yeah, I, and that's the funny thing. When I went, I was like, okay, yeah, like I've been to some places where the coral cover is 100%, you know, where you only see corals and it's amazing and corals the size of this table here. And when I when I was, got the opportunity to go to the flower gardens, I heard amazing stories about them. And I don't think that I could have prepared myself for what I was going to see <laughs> because <laughs> it's one of those things where people are like, yeah, the coral was this big, you know, like with fish. Sure, yeah. Um, and when I dove down, one, it's really deep. Like the shallowest mm -hmm. we were was about 70 feet. Wow. And it's very, very deep. But then two, some of the corals that I saw were some very slow growing corals that would take tens and hundreds of years in order to get to that size. That's incredible. And just being like those corals are larger than I am was just like astonishing. And and at that moment, you realize how small you are mm -hmm. and oh, like how gosh, precious sure. an ecosystem like that mm -hmm. is. And just seeing these brain corals that are just the size of minivans mm -hmm. was just like, I had no idea that corals could, those corals could get that big. That's something that I really, really like about just, just going outside in general, be it, you know, I've never been diving, but I'm sure it's the same experience. But when you go up into the mountains or just go to a really expansive place, it makes you realize how small you right. are and it makes you realize what an incredible place like our planet is and just how fortunate we are to be able to see these things mm -hmm. so that that that's really cool that you that you had that experience but I know that when you recently um one of one of your recent trips out there um you had gone um actually joined by Terry Palmer mm -hmm. um he's one of our, our researchers here in our coastal conservation and restoration lab um you guys went um on a disease detection um kind of a, a response trip, mm -hmm. um, as well as you helped out with some long-term monitoring tasks at the Flower Gardens. So tell us a little bit about that trip. Yeah. Um, you know, that trip, I, when the first time we went out, it was about two weeks before the response trip. And it was part of this, this group effort across different agencies to go out there and try to conduct uh, and continue the long-term monitoring that's been happening there. And it happens across our ocean. 
And when we went back and I would, you know, honestly, I was, I was in denial. Mm. I, I really thought that a disease outbreak wasn't going to happen there. Kind of like everyone else was thinking like, oh, it's, it's so remote. It's right? so remote. It's really unlikely. Like how, how could it get there? We had a feeling that it might be coming, but I don't, it, it was one of those things where we went and I dove and I was just, I wouldn't believe it until I saw it from mm-hmm. my own, my own eyes. And Part of the trip out there was, one, doing some surveys and assessing and quantifying, but then also applying some um, antibacterial paste as well on the corals. And part of it was, I kind of have mixed feelings about it because Mm -hmm. we wanted to understand what was going on and then try to help reduce the amount of uh, disease spreads that was happening at the same time. But at the same time, you have this feeling of, you know how precious this ecosystem is. You know how long it takes for these corals to grow. And you know what is at stake here. Right. And when you see that progression of disease that's happening and you know that it's only going to get worse, it's really hard to remain optimistic oh, about the outcome yeah. of that. So I think at the time when we were there, I was – I'm really happy I went the first time without seeing disease because I gained that appreciation. And then when I went the second time, it was more of that urgency that, hey, we really – Hey, we have to protect We place. need to do something. Yeah. because. We previously thought that these reefs were going to be protected forever because they're so remote, and now we know that it, that's not the case anymore. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's that's really amazing. Um, you know, I, I hope that I hope that just you know people listening to this, and you know, the more people that um, are able to learn about what you guys are doing in your lab, you know, will really take that to heart and, and recognize that even these remote places, you know, they they need our respect and they need our protection and, mm-hmm. and stuff. So, um, but it's also fascinating to think that you know, you can go to a coral reef and like start to repair it, hopefully repair it Mm -hmm. in some way with, with, you know, antibiotics. That's pretty interesting. Right. Yeah. And it's something that, you know, there are some controversies around that. Like, should we, should we do something or, and like, should we not, or should we do something or not about it? And part of the idea of it is that these animals take so long to grow and we only have so many of them and they're already threatened in a lot of other places. And some of the corals that we have at the flower gardens are, you know, nearing extinction other places. And it comes to a point where it's like, we need to do what we can do right now in order to make sure that these do survive and make it. And when we are there, you kind of do feel at the same time, like, of course, you have this feeling of, wow, this is really terrible. But then, look, I'm actually physically helping and putting antibiotics yeah. on this coral. Yeah. And I'm hoping that this will help that coral survive. So you are essentially like a coral doctor yeah. when you're out there, which is really exciting Dr. at the same coral. time. Dr. Coral. <laughs> <laughs> trying to trying to help. Like, like yes, I'm going to put this on there and hopefully that we'll see them again. And since it's so remote to get to the flower garden banks, we have been trying to get back out there to see how our actions have made a difference and what the status of the disease is right now, too. Oh, that's so cool. So hopefully well, we'll be able to go out relatively soon and see how it looks yeah, after that. For sure. For sure. I mean, this is probably a loaded question. If you don't have an answer off the top of your head, that's okay. But, you know, if you could tell, you know, just our, our viewers and listeners, if, if there's something that just the everyday person could do that could perhaps lessen their impact mm-hmm. on on just our oceans and lessen our impact on coral reefs, like what would you what would you suggest people do? You know, that's a really good question because I think when we think about these problems, it seems really overwhelming. It's like too much. It's right? too much, and then yeah. it's hard to comprehend. Like, if this problem is so large, how could I do something in my individual life to make a, a difference? Mm-hmm. Or do like the things that I do, does it really matter? Sure. And that's a question I get a lot from my students or any talks that I give to the public because it's just, 
it can be very depressing talking about coral decline. And we try to take a more optimistic approach that we help invoke change and not just discourage people from doing anything. For sure. So just, you know, to answer your question is the number one thing that I always say is carbon. Okay. What we know is that everything is impacted by the amount of carbon that we use. And the more carbon that we put into the atmosphere, the more changes that we're seeing in our oceans. So if we could do small things in our life to reduce the amount of carbon that we're producing, such as eating lower on the food chain or eating less red meat or potentially driving instead of driving so much to work, or maybe we can walk or bike other places instead or switch to more renewable resources. That is not only helping corals, it's helping all of our ecosystems. So that's what I like to talk about. Because, of course, we can talk about other things that are occurring more locally, but that is a, an issue that we can't address by just individually reducing how much carbon that we're yeah. emitting into the atmosphere. And it just takes, it just takes, you know, like you said, it can be very overwhelming right. to a lot of people, mm-hmm. you know, just thinking about the big picture. But it really just takes small actions from all of us, like little bitty things, little bitty changes, and, you know, it can make a really big difference. Right. So, um, it's a really good excuse for me to ride my bike to work. So, which exactly. is fun. You're helping you know? <laughs> the planet and you're helping yourself. Yeah, yeah. exactly. It's so, a good exercise. Yeah, it's but... a cardio burn. Yeah. And, and that's something that it's it's a small substitute that you can make. And one of the things that we try to encourage with some of the students in our classes, like, hey, let's all try Meatless Monday. And then we'll share like some ways that we can be um, eat more vegetarian focused meals or they'll do more carpooling. Like, hey, can we carpool oh, cool. together and try to reduce the amount of carbon that we're emitting? Because that's that's one of the major drivers that we're seeing the, the changes that are occurring. And like that's I said, not just corals, it's it's everything, um, more wildfires that we're seeing as well. And it is it is really easy just to makes very conscious decisions that do reduce the amount of carbon that you are emitting. So I want to dive in, no pun intended there, but a little bit. Um, I want to talk a little bit more about diving at at the flower gardens. Um, You mentioned that it's a really difficult dive and that, um, you know, some of like the minimum depth that you guys went was 70 feet, which Mm -hmm. which which sounds, you know, that's pretty intense, right? But so I don't, I don't know a lot about diving. I don't know a lot about scuba, but I, I am very interested in, in, you know, Terry, who I mentioned earlier. Um, I was just having a casual conversation with him about free diving, which, you know, if, if I'm into spearfishing, then I'm kind of interested in, in free diving, right? Um, he recommended a book to me called Deep by James Nestor. And um, it's kind of like what Born to Run was to running. You know, it's what deep is to free diving. Okay. So make that comparison that way. But so when you're free diving, for anybody who doesn't know, you're going underwater, you know, single breath of air, and you're holding it for however long you're underwater and you know you're moving and so therefore your muscles are using up oxygen that way but when you start to feel uncomfortable it's because your body is building up carbon dioxide mm-hmm. right so um and then there's the whole pressure issue at mm-hmm. deeper depths so yeah that sounds pretty pretty dangerous and pretty intense um you know having no oxygen and having no like tools like nitrox i believe was something that you guys use mm-hmm. so like, tell me a little bit about why that's such a difficult dive and why diving to those depths, even when you, you know, have oxygen and, um, you know, whatever else it is that you might take down there with you. Why is it so difficult? Well, first I will say free diving is way more difficult than <laughs> scuba diving. And you just seeing all that stuff, I'm like, wow, that makes me so anxious because my free diving depth is like five feet and I'm like, I need air. You know? <laughs> well, so. apparently there's like stretches you can do and I... I 
yeah, it's all, I'll, all my knowledge of it is from that book. So it's fascinating. I would, right. I would really recommend it, but yeah. yeah. And that, I mean, free diving should be an Olympic sport if it isn't already. For um, sure. With, with scuba diving, the reason why it diving at the flower garden banks is challenging is because of the depth. Mm that you are going to normally scuba diving is a very safe recreational activity that anyone can partake in and it's relatively safe or it is most of the time safe as long as you're trained well mm-hmm. and, and it's um adequate training that you have and it's safe conditions the issue at the flower garden banks is that you have to go so deep to get to the the reef that when you're at that depth you can only stay at bottom or down for a certain amount of time wow and once you have limited air supply Mm -hmm. you need to come to the surface so it takes a lot longer to come up to the surface than you would in a normal shallower dive because you can't just swim quickly to the surface you cannot yeah you need to ascend or come to the surface very very slow or you could have some issues with um some bubbling of your Mm. in your blood and really scary things yeah really scary things so you need to come up relatively slow when you are diving that deep so that's that's the biggest issue and then in any other types of situations where you're diving you have to be really careful about what your surroundings are Mm. and sometimes at the flower gardens there are pretty heavy currents okay and if you're dealing with a current you're using a lot more air more oxygen consumption less time at the bottom and then more of that concern, like, I need to get to the top before I run out of air. Sure. So yeah. that those are the, the really the big things. Anything else is just, like, us breathing air right now, except for we can't breathe out of our nose underwater. We breathe mm-hmm. out of our mouth, which is something I always forget when I'm underwater. I'm like, <laughs> oh, wait, I have to breathe in and out of my mouth, like a mouth breather the whole time. Right. Um, but when you're, you know, when you're underwater, the way that I like to think about it is, like, you're an, you're an astronaut. Yeah. Like, you are really a, an totally. aquanaut. And it's such a fascinating thing that... It's like you're in this underwater alien world and you're like reliant on your air supply in some aspects and you get to explore and you're completely weightless. That's Which amazing. It's amazing. You really are an astronaut in that sense. Right, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it's a, and the thing is, I don't think a lot of us have that experience of completely being weightless. Sure. And that's such a, a really amazing feeling. And you're just submersed, literally, your pun mm-hmm. right there. Yeah. You're submersed in another world. And I and that's really rewarding. And all those things together make diving or scuba diving really worth it. And you don't have to have that concern of how long have I hold sure. it, holding my breath before yeah. I need to go to the surface. Yeah. So it, it is a relatively safe uh, practice of scuba diving. It's just the depths that we're concerned at with how long we can stay Didn't down. mean to at all like turn anyone off of any kind of diving activity. <laughs> if you want to try it, please do so safely. Mm-hmm. But um but yeah, I, I think that that's something that kind of draws me to the idea of freediving and, and and scuba is the I just the idea that like you have to remain calm and you have right. to, you know, be mindful about everything that's going on around you and you have to remain present in that situation. And I think that's something that, you know, we could all could practice a little bit more of just in our in our daily lives. Right. So. Yeah. And, that, and that's something to that's I think that's the biggest thing with diving is that realizing there are all of these things that could go wrong, but mm-hmm. they will likely not go wrong if you remain calm and you have that training that you need. And luckily for us, in, in terms of our line of work, we undergo extensive scuba diving training in order to be able to go on these excursions and work with these people because we have a lot of tasks that we have to do sure. and we need to make sure that we are very safe when we are doing those. Most definitely. <laughs> and I, I think that... Um, 
I, I feel like you had maybe told me when we were working on our press release, like just, you know, a few months ago, um, Texas A&M University Corpus Christi offers quite a bit of dive, dive training for, for students. Is that correct? That is correct. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. What and kind of, what kind of diving can, can students get into? What can they learn? Yeah. Uh, it's actually a really great program that we've been constructing over the past few years. And we've developed a partnership with Texas State Aquarium too, oh, okay. to help with uh, some of the training that we do. Our friends. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's really great because we get to go part of the training is you get to go dive in the at the aquarium okay and which is a really unique experience i haven't done it yet which i feel kind of weird saying i haven't done at the aquarium yet <laughs> soon it will soon. happen yeah. yeah but that the interesting thing about that is you are surrounded by sharks mm -hmm. like you dive in the exhibits that have sharks in it it's a very real experience yeah, yeah. and yeah. you know the sharks are like oh hey there you are like, yeah and then they just no go on deal. living their life yeah um, but part of the training that we do here, we do <laughs> offer scientific diver training. And that, it sounds like super fancy, and mm -hmm. it, I guess it is kind of fancy. But part of it is within that training, you get your advanced diver, you get your, um, you can get your nitrox diver, you can get your rescue, and your master diver. So you're really wow. getting four certifications in one. That's and, so cool. And you can do it in about a year, usually. In my training that I did, I did it in Hawaii, um, and it, we got it in, I think, Three weeks it was really intense yeah really fast yeah really really fast but really intensive diving and it's just multiple hours wow. underwater I don't I don't know how much time I've spent underwater I stopped wow. counting yeah yeah that's really amazing and we'll, we'll come back to that thought later too because okay. I would like to hear about some of your like most memorable experiences oh, okay. while diving because I think I think you probably got some pretty good stories there but so um you mentioned Texas State Aquarium you know our friends across the bay there mm -hmm. um so tell me about some of the work that, that you've done with them aside from just just the diving yeah uh so I love working with Texas State Aquarium and one of the first things I did when I started my position here at AM Corpus was reach out to them and say hey I heard you guys have corals how, <laughs> one how are you keeping corals in captivity I want to learn more but then also reaching out and like establishing that connection of like how can we work together to help promote the the education in the, in the public of hey we have really amazing alien creatures that build these really amazing structures and we should tell everyone about them because they're not just rocks right <laughs> um, so part of the work that we started doing we've been work I've been working with them for almost four years now was. Um, trying to understand more about the health of corals and develop an index or a color chart of oh, how health, cool. healthy corals are. Um, and this kind of started with the work I did in Hawaii where we have had these events that have happened where corals are not so healthy and we call them bleaching events. And part of it was we needed a need to understand if a coral is healthy or not. And we wanted to empower and develop a tool for the community to go out and say, hey, that coral is healthy or that coral is not healthy. Just by looking at Just it. Just by looking at it. And all this happened with my PhD advisor, who um, had a really great sense of humor. <laughs> and he asked me, how do I tell if a coral is healthy or not? You know, and I'm a very young, uh, very young, very eager mm. graduate student, and I'm mm. trying to impress him, right, and say all these sure. like crazy things. Yeah. These, oh, you do this and you do this, Every all these complicated things. Yeah. <laughs> and he just smirked at me, and I love this because it's just like ingrained in my memory. He just smirked, and he just said, oh, you just look at it. And, <laughs> and you're like, like, uh, you're like yeah, 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 of course you do. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And that, that was kind of like the whole idea behind the the. A color indicator mm -hmm. was if you look at a coral, you know how healthy it is because of the color of the coral. Wow. So if a coral is not healthy, the color will get lighter, mm -hmm. and that's indicating that it doesn't have as much algae inside of its tissue. So okay. the lighter it is, it's less healthy than it could be. And we wanted to really develop a way that other people could say, yes, this coral is healthy or not. 
So we did that for corals in Hawaii, and it's been really, really helpful for the, um, the community to go out and monitor corals mm-hmm. and report that online so we can see where there might be unhealthy corals are, where they might be, and maybe bleaching might be happening, and where we can um, implement some restoration or management actions. Very cool. So when I came here, I told the folks at Texas State Aquarium about it, and they're like, Oh, that's awesome because we have this wellness program and we're trying to assess how healthy our animals are. And we don't really know how to do that with corals. Like, do we look at their polyps being like out mm-hmm. or how they're feeding? And I was like, oh, you just look at it. And I'm like, okay, but how but do we, what look, do we at? look at? Yeah, yeah, exactly. The same kind of thing of like, how do we know if the coral is healthy or not? So uh, we started working with them and trying to develop some colors for the corals that they have in captivity. And it was really great because my first undergraduate student, she got to help develop this card, Aww. go work at the aquarium, come up with a color swatch, kind of like a paint swatch, mm-hmm. and develop that and give it to them for testing to see if they can match the colors with the corals that they had. And then we also paired that with a, an actual measurement, a, a quantitative measurement of health of corals. And now they have that tool and they love it and they're just like now every aquarium needs to have this and we're like absolutely we're like yes we agree but also that's a lot of work but yes we agree (laughs) so that was part of the the initiation that we started working with them and we've been working together like i said for almost four years now of either the color card and now more recently we're doing more coral conservation series Mm. with them and doing more education and outreach about corals and having conversations about hey this is what a coral is this is why they're important and on top of that, hey, this is what a scientist is. Yeah. And this is what a life in a scientist looks like. And this is what we do. And just a more behind the scenes to make science more approachable and sure. also bring corals closer to people yeah. all across the world, regardless of where they're located. Make it more relatable, right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, we're just normal people. We're yeah, just not very good sure. at talking to people. <laughs> we're, we're normal, I promise. I think you're good at talking to people. Well, I swear I'm normal. Yeah, you're a normal person, very much. Um, so while we're on the topic of collaboration, mm-hmm. um, Last year, you were announced as one of HRI's new fellows, um, and so you're working with um, Dr. Mark Bessonen. Mm-hmm. He's our um, director of international programs here at HRI, and you're also working with our chairs in, in Mexico and Cuba. Correct. So um, tell us a little bit about what you're going to be working on um, with them as an HRI fellow. Yeah, um, this has been a Probably really... Probably a lot. A lot. <laughs> yeah. I, well, one of the my major things when I moved back to the mainland was to be able to reach out to other communities and see how I can help with the work that they're doing. And that was kind of instilled in me when I was in Hawaii is, yes, we could do science, like I mentioned earlier, but... That's, does that science mean something unless someone is able to use it to help better manage their own resources? So when I've had conversations with Mark, one of the things that keeps coming up is like, how do we help people who don't have as many resources mm-hmm. and how can we help support the needs that they have so they can better manage their source resources that they have? So he brought me into this um, group looking at um, understanding how Cuban reefs and also reefs in Mexico are being monitored after a certain amount of time and seeing what kind of support we can provide for them. And this will involve a lot of the work that we're trying to start with is one, having conversations about what we know and what we don't know, and what people are doing in those areas. Sure. I'm sure it's completely different than than what, you know, our resource managers might be doing here. Right. And, and But the thing is about that is a lot of people have some really great techniques or ways that they're implementing how they look at their reefs. Mm-hmm. And we want to try, what well, all we want to do is understand, okay, what are you doing here? What are you doing there? And how can we compare them? Yeah. Or do you need support in order, like, do you need more training to help you be able to 
count more fish or accurately assess how big the fish are or accurately assess the health of the corals and how can we support you? So those are the conversations that we are having of bringing people together, putting them in the same room and saying, these are the problems that we are having and these are the solutions that other people have done. And can we do knowledge share of that and help each other and then also find other resources to get the tools that they need to better manage their systems, um, their, their reef ecosystems. Because what we know is the Gulf is not just Texas and Louisiana. The Gulf is Mexico, Cuba, it's Florida. Like we need to work together to manage these ecosystems together. And in order to do that, we need to support each other. For sure. And I can only imagine that whenever you get all of these people, you know, in a room together and you're sharing these ideas and having these discussions, you know, it gets you so much farther than, Mm -hmm. you know, if you were just to stay in your little box and it's like, okay, we're just going to focus on, on, you know, Gulf. Texas and, you know, the Gulf around Florida and and areas like that. So I think that that's one of the really interesting things that, you know, Mark does and you'll get to do with him Mm -hmm. is having those conversations with folks that otherwise may have never happened. Exactly. And I've been part of this. The first conversation that we started having was with the disease outbreak, Mm -hmm. which was extremely alarming because, again, we just didn't think it was going to come to the Flower Gardens, but we saw what was happening in other areas And just being able to respond to something that happens and progresses so fast and not know what to do and kind of feeling helpless in that moment. Part of the workshop that Mark brought everyone together was to really understand and share, hey, this is what we've done in these places and this is what's working. This wasn't this didn't work. And that was extremely helpful because we just don't have enough time with Mm -hmm. how fast that disease moves. And then the next workshop, we started talking about like, okay, how do we quantify health? across our different reef ecosystems. And now we're talking about moving forward of how do we help support methodologies that can help us standardize how we look and measure our corals and fish across these different communities. Wow. So just having those conversations and supporting each other is extremely important because we have resources that they don't and they have resources that we don't. So how can we help each other for this better or this greater good of preserving our reefs in the Gulf in the the Caribbean as well. Right. And it just it goes back to just the overall just communication and and science communication. And, you know, it's a great lead into to the narrative gem, really. Um, So I I do want to I don't want to finish the podcast without talking about this. Mm -hmm. So this this is your your new book that you um, Mm co-authored, The Narrative Gem for Science uh, Graduate Students and Postdocs. So um, Talk a little bit about what the Narrative Gym is and how it can be beneficial to to students and science communicators. Of course. Uh, So... I, I want to be honest about this book because the motivation behind it is a bit selfish. Okay. Because when I was starting my career as a scientist, I was taught and I was trained that you are a researcher and you're only a researcher. Oh, interesting. And someone else will do the communications for you. Okay. I know. And I was like, oh, okay. So um, when I was studying in Hawaii, uh, we experienced a coral bleaching event and it was massive. A lot of corals died. So actually, you know, at first I was really excited because I was studying coral bleaching and this you know, visual response of corals are not healthy and seeing a lot of corals do that and across an entire reef, I was like, this is really cool. Like I can see all these corals are unhealthy and they're all responding in a similar way to this warming that's happening in mm-hmm. our waters. And then afterwards, we you know we went out and we collected all this data and we wrote up a publication because that's what we do as scientists. And then we published it and the corals, some of them died and recovered. Yeah. And then the next year it happened again. And I felt like I was doing my duty of 
going out and collecting data and then publishing that and that was good enough. And then that's kind of where it stopped, right? Right. Yeah. And I was, I thought I was raising, I thought I was doing my part in communicating, communicating my science and helping show that, hey, this is happening. We should do something about it. And I even made recommendations of like what we should do with mm-hmm. coral bleaching or how we should help with um, quantifying it or managing which reefs are being impacted. But when it happened again, I think that's for me where it was a pivotal moment in my life where I realized that doing research alone wasn't enough. Sure. Yeah. And I I was like, I decided if I wanted to go out there and tell people that this was a problem and help direct solutions to coral bleaching, I needed to become a better communicator with people in order to communicate the science that I was doing. Yeah. So I sought out to do this. And one of the first things I did is I Googled how to communicate science. (laughs) (laughs) And it it wasn't really, there was some tricks, you know, like know your audience and uh, make sure you have some jokes or, you know, make it relatable. Sure. But it it wasn't really helpful for me because I just didn't feel like there was a, there wasn't really any structured way of how do I know which information to present and Mm -hmm. how to present that information based on the audience I was talking to. It Mm -hmm. wasn't very logical about how to do that. It was more of a piecemeal approach with that. Gotcha. So when I started, when I was interviewing and I started this position, um, they actually asked me to teach a science communication course. Oh, wow. Yeah. They're like, hey, your talk was really great. Um, you know, they didn't really say this, yeah. but maybe they're like, hey, she she speaks, you know, very well. She can teach science communication, right? She can right? handle yeah. it, right? Just throw it at her. Yeah. It'll be I was fine. Like, okay, yeah, I can do that. <laughs> <laughs> Which like, I think is really funny. I tell my students, too. I'm like, you know, I don't have a background in communications like you do at all. I just talk, and I guess pretty well. And now they want and to come teach other us, people. Right? You're obviously doing a good job. <laughs> so, I, I, you know, that was like the reality of it, of, okay, if I really want to be effective, I can't really just string things together mm-hmm. and become an effective science communicator if I don't really know the, the background or really how to do this or the structure of that. So I started working with Dr. Randy Olson, who was actually a professor as well. And he left his position as a tenured professor and went to film school. What? Because of the same kind of reason of we need to be better at communicating. And the best way I could learn how to communicate (laughs) is to go to film school and learn about from the movies of how do you really communicate information to people? That's really amazing. What does that story structure look like? Yeah. So now he's been doing this communications training in science. And I've been working with him for the past, I think it's three years now. And we started working together and I've been taking his trainings of how to actually be more structured in how we communicate our science. Wow. And part of this is I started implementing and training our students here at AM Corpus about how do we do this approach? How do we structure information? How do we tell a narrative? And how do we tell a story based on the information that we're sharing? And he found out. He's like, oh, that's great Like that you're doing this. And more and more people asked about, oh, well, how do you do this? How do you implement? Yeah. And how do you train people how to do this? And he's like, you know what? We should write a book. You're like, okay. I'm like, yeah, okay. I have a lot of things going on. <laughs> I don't want to, okay. to do, but sure. I was like, I'll okay, add yeah, corals list. and books. Okay. <laughs> um, so, so we sat out. We were like, okay, we're going to write a book. Um, I was in the middle of field season in Hawaii, and we sat down, we wrote the book, and we pulled it together. And that's what came out of this is really trying to implement and show other people yes, it might seem really overwhelming, but here is a systematic way that you can approach uh, science and any actually kind of conversations that you have and structure that information that people understand what you're saying. Yeah. And I just did a training last night after I, I spoke with you. I did a two and a half hour training too for other graduate wow. students at the university. And one of them came back to me when I did a training six months ago and he is in the engineering department. And he's like, I just want to thank you so much because 
when I would talk to people, I just felt like they weren't listening or I was giving you them too much information. Yeah, yeah, it was overwhelming them. And he's like, and now I feel like I'm very confident in how I communicate and I'm able to present information that is um, in a way that they understand and I'm not talking down to them. Mm-hmm. Like we're having a common yeah. ground conversation and I feel more effective in what I'm trying to do. And I just really want to thank Aww. you for doing that. And, and that's really rewarding for me because when we talk about communications, people are just like, yeah, you just go talk to people. But it's, it's a lot, not that you easy. You know that. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I'm preaching to the choir right now. Like, yeah. It's a lot harder. But teaching scientists like, hey, you have to get out of your little bubble. Like you're in the weeds. You have to bring it out so people understand what you're saying. And then you can take them on your journey about your research and, and relate to them why it matters. For sure. So it's been really rewarding because all of my stuff started because I felt like I wasn't doing my job as a scientist and communicating my I science. love that though. I love mm-hmm. that you were able to to you know step back and kind of recognize that, and you know you weren't just like, all right, well this is my job. I'm going to write this paper mm-hmm. and and call it a day. But you really wanted to make sure that your message and your work was reaching the the right people and 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 reaching even farther than that, so that so that your work could be understood. So right, that's really important. What else? There's only so much we can do, right, yeah. in our time, in our day. And that's kind of been my motivation moving forward is what kind of person am I going to be moving forward? Am I going to be a person who, you know, is just generating data and that data goes live somewhere? Or am I going to really try to make change? And what can I do in my own capacity to help create some of that change that I would like to see? And that's been the motivation I've had with my students, too, of, like, hey, we all need to be better communicators. Let's work on this together because the more – we as scientists are better communicators, the more we are able to reach people and help them understand that science is really important, but there's always always a disconnect and we mm-hmm. need help with connecting with our communities because we want to help. We just don't know how. And a lot of it is because of communication barrier. Sure. And absolutely. we just need to build that bridge and uh, w- the work needs to come from our side. Yeah. Like, it yeah. really does. Well, I, I mean, you know, it, I always like to to tell people, you know, I say I'm a communications coordinator, but okay, what does that mean? Mm-hmm. So I I like to say, well, I trans I try and translate the science into more easily understood language that, you know, somebody watching the local newscast can understand or somebody that's reading a Facebook post can understand. And you know, sometimes it's not that not that easy. Right. Sometimes you have to, you know, you don't want to talk down so much that, you know, you erase the science and mm-hmm. or that you make your audience feel like you are um, like you're talking down to them or, you know, like they can't understand something. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a it's a really fine balance. But in in a past life, um, I was I was a park interpreter um, way out in the Big Bend of Texas. And so I think I took a lot of lessons from that. You know, I didn't interpret language, but I had to figure out a way to interpret a resource and find a way for just everyday people that were coming through the park to relate to that history, relate to those resources or, you know, relate to that mountain, mm-hmm. whatever it may have been. Right. And so I, I think that you know, just those little lessons of figuring out, um, you know, what is it that people want to know? What's the most important message that you can get out there and how do we make them care? Right. So I, I think it, I really applaud you for, you know, going this route and, and, you know, putting that out there because it's, it is so important and, um, it's, it's, 
like like we keep saying, it's how we make people care and make people want to help. So And it's it's extremely important. And one of the biggest things I say, and it's in the book, is what we call Shirley's Law. And if you want to tell your story, you want to be the person that tells your story. You don't want somebody else to tell exactly. it for you because yeah. they might not like the way you tell it. Mm-hmm. So that's why I'm trying to empower our students to be the person that tells their story, to tell their research. And of course, we need to have people help support that that story or those that research that we're doing but the more we have people out there and talking with people about their research or talking about the science that they're doing the that's where we're really going to see the change happen yeah for sure next time i do a media training i'm just going to be like hey keisha just come over and just talk to everybody please <laughs> she can do this better than i can <laughs> well, maybe i'll just take your lessons too oh, well. but because there's so much we can learn yeah. about just communications in general mm-hmm. and it it's really important. And that was something that I was like, yeah, there's so many jobs that we have to do as scientists. And maybe I don't have to be a communications person. Yeah. But then actually bridging and helping people form those connections and understand how they're presenting, it is really important, not even for just science to public, mm-hmm. but also within the science community sure, as well. With each other. Yeah. Because yeah. we're just, we're also just not very good at talking to each other. Yeah. And we're trying to be better at that and yeah. talking the same language instead of staying in our little bubbles. It's real easy to like just put your head down and just start working and right. let that be it. So yeah. So we're working awesome. on it. We're, you know, stay tuned. Maybe eventually we'll be people who like, we're more extroverted. Yeah. Maybe eventually. Yeah. Maybe eventually. <laughs> I mean, you know, I'm, I'm, definitely introverted but maybe one day i'll figure this extrovert thing out so yeah let me know when you find it yeah i'll I'll let you know (laughs) all right so today is not national women in science day but we're gonna celebrate it today (laughs) anyway we're a few days late yes we're gonna celebrate it because you are a badass woman in in science and so i think you're worth celebrating and it's always worth celebrating um all of the contributions that women have made to Mm -hmm. science so um i would like to ask you um since you are a first generation scientist um is there anybody, you know, that while you were growing up that you really looked up to and that inspired you to get into science? Oh, uh, of course. And like part of it was, you know, just science in general, I was really inspired by. But there have been a lot of females, actually a lot of my own female mentors who have been really inspirational to me. And of course, um, like Jane Goodall was like a really huge inspiration to me. And even in the field of coral reef ecology, Nancy Knowlton is a huge inspiration and Sylvia Earle. Oh, yeah. And I all of my mentors mentors uh, my, my PI was a male but all my mentors were females and just seeing how they were able to handle being a, a woman and being able to be in a, a male dominated field at their time and be able to push through those barriers has been so inspiring for me of like hey yeah we can do this and we can balance multiple things and regardless of what gender we are we can really make a contribution to that absolutely and yeah. even my my lab all except for two are are uh, females too really <laughs> yeah wow. we were all females and then we're like okay i guess we have to let some males in yeah so. <laughs> you gotta let the guys in too <laughs> lots of women power yeah. going on and then you know of course like the male supporting the women too because mm-hmm. it is it is a difficult role to play as a female sometimes where you have to juggle multiple things and even our personalities like we're we're not really built to be people who push barriers but now we're we're learning that hey we do need to push barriers and And we can and we can push barriers Mm -hmm. to to make a difference absolutely and i think every day should be national women in science i totally agree with you it definitely (laughs) should it's something worth celebrating Mm -hmm. all the time i can imagine that you you know you said you were just inspired by science when you're whenever you were a kid i can imagine we were very similar i was just the kid that was like i I was outside all the time Mm -hmm. because i lived in the middle of nowhere so every little critter every little insect whatever it was i was just fascinated by it Mm -hmm. and i need to know more and so I just 
I was this kid that had this bookshelf of like Audubon guides of God knows what, like mm -hmm. every, everything I could possibly get my hands on. But yeah, I was just inspired by science too when I was a kid. And yeah, same thing. Nature yeah. was so interesting. And I was that annoying child that was like asking all these questions. Yes. <laughs> my my family, my parents are just like, I don't know. Just yeah. stop asking questions. I'm like, why? Stop <laughs> asking saying. questions. And then here's a book. <laughs> yeah. And that's yeah. the funny thing. And now my whole career is asking questions. Yeah. So that's just really rewarding to be able to go from who you were as a child and what really interests you to like now my career is all about asking questions and encouraging other people to ask questions, For which sure. is kind of, I don't, that's like a, I don't know. That's, I don't even know how to describe that. It's yeah. like, full circle there. Oh, for sure. What was happened with my life. Cause I just, I never really understood what a career was because my family's lives haven't been careers. They've been jobs. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. now having a career where I actually enjoy what I've been doing my entire life is yeah. part of what I do now. Aww. Yeah, that's awesome. It's really rewarding. That's really cool. I, I don't know how on earth I've managed to pull together a journalism degree and a, you know, degree in, in natural resources and agriculture. So talk about full circle. Yeah, like, that's amazing. <laughs> um, but, you know, it, somehow, somehow it's worked out and I'm, I'm, I feel pretty fortunate to have been able to, to make it this far with such a interesting background, but. I know. Anyway. And I think that's something that a lot, not a lot of people talk about, and I try to talk about with my students, is that we all have our own journeys yeah. to get to oh where we need to go. And not everyone's journey is the same, and that is okay. And it's better if it's not the same. 100%. Because we have people who are non-traditional students who come back to school, and that's great. Come mm -hmm. back to school and be lifelong learners. And that's something I think we should celebrate. And you know, regardless of your different degrees or where you've been or where you're going, it's just really great to see and support each other in those journeys that they have. 100%. I couldn't agree more. More. Being a lifelong learner is such an important thing and mm -hmm. just always maintaining that that childlike curiosity and just wanting to learn and wanting to grow. I think that's so important exactly. and definitely something to be celebrated. So um, before we wrap up here, I do you have any really memorable moments from from some dives or some interesting uh, like critters that you may have run into that you'd like to tell us about? Just, oh yes, I'm sure you've got. A I do. Um, <laughs> well, one comes to always comes to mind uh, because. It's, it's such a weird, it was a weird experience in the fact that I had the really rare opportunity to go up to the Northwestern Hawaiian Islands, which is only a, a handful of people have been up there. And, <clears throat> excuse me, it's a very unique ecosystem because uh, the reefs there and the whole ecosystem itself is relatively still intact. Uh, so there are a lot of sharks there. Okay. And part of my responsibilities when I was going up there wasn't actually for a, a coral um, position like a coral reef biologist so I wasn't going up there as that I was actually going up as a shark biologist oh yeah okay. I, I, I don't know if you don't, if you don't know this I don't study things that move very well <laughs> so. but I was part of the the shark team going up and I was just really excited to be able to g be given an opportunity to go see these relatively pristine areas and a just beautiful ecosystem yeah. and it was life-changing and part of that journey was we actually I actually did end up switching the corals um, part of it was I was going to help out with the shark team, but then the coral team needed me. And I was like, sorry, I got to go to the coral sorry, team. Sorry, <laughs> corals. Double duty. When when I was on the, my first dive on the coral team with one of my really good friends, uh, we were doing some disease surveys. There was no disease, but just in case. And we were doing our safety stop. And there was a little bit of a current. So we're just doing a little drift dive, which is really fun because you get to see a lot of things in a short period of time. And we are right off of Curie Atoll, which is the most uh, northern atoll that there is on the Northwestern Hawaii Islands. 
And I just look around, and all of a sudden, I start seeing some shadows. And I see oh God. more shadows. <laughs> <laughs> and I see more shadows. And what happens is I'm looking around, and I see my dive partner, and my eyes are starting to get big, and he's yeah. pointing around me. You're like a heart's pounding. <laughs> yeah. And what happened is we were engulfed uh, with a school of sharks. And oh my it was one of those experiences where you recognize in that moment, like you have anxiety and you're like, oh my gosh, there's sharks. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh, I'm in the ocean and there's sharks, of course, right? Of course. <laughs> but being <laughs> surrounded by that many sharks, I think we estimated about 80 sharks wow. were surrounding us. And, That's incredible. Uh, we just, you know, my heart was pounding and I just like stopped and took a really deep breath. And I was like, wait a second, this isn't scary. This is amazing. This is amazing. Yeah. And it's just like your that mind of like that mindset of, I am experiencing what a healthy reef ecosystem looks like. Absolutely. And we got some really cool footage of it. And we also said that this is the real Sharknado versus that <laughs> fake film that they had of yeah. like the sharks coming out of the tornado. Absolutely. But it was one of those moments where I don't think a lot of people have had that experience. I'm and sure I was not. really fortunate that I experienced it, even though I was no longer on the shark team. But And we came up and we saw the shark team and we're like, oh my gosh, we saw like all these sharks. And they're just like, like we didn't. Like, we missed it. Aren't you guys supposed to be looking at corals? <laughs> like, yes, but. <laughs> and that w- that was the thing. Like, people ask me, like, aren't you scared of sharks? I'm like, no. I'd like, like, there's other things that I'm, I'm more nervous sure. about. And you're the going ocean. in their, their habitat. Right. So. But it's their habitat, it's yeah. their home. And just being able to be in the presence of animals that don't know what you are because mm-hmm. they just don't, they don't recognize humans. They're not around humans up in those remote places and be able to experience what they experience. It was so beautiful oh, and so calming at the same time. Yeah. And I feel just very fortunate. I think that moment I will always carry with me of being able to see a more uh, natural or pristine ecosystem. I love that so much. Yeah. I love it. it I would love to see experience. footage from that. Yeah. yeah it's a very green mueller because it was like from like 10 years ago when <laughs> the footage was probably weren't yeah. as great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. But it was it was one of those things where we're, I think I don't know. I always share that with my students of there are opportunities in which you will appreciate that we have these beautiful ecosystems. And we, I don't think there was enough time in a day where we can truly appreciate how amazing they are. For sure. You're going to remember that for the rest of your life and yeah, you to tell, exactly. tell that story for the rest of your I life. I know. So. It's amazing. Awesome. Um, so uh, yesterday when we talked, um, you you talked about some really exciting things that you guys have, um, are going to have coming up in your lab. Mm-hmm. So live corals live corals yeah. yes so yeah. tell us a little bit about that yeah uh we're excited oh i'm excited but i'm also a bit nervous okay so that's, I, that's fair yeah. that's fair because corals are complicated yeah. they're very complicated they're very sensitive so it's, it is challenging to keep them in captivity but we're going to try to do that part of the goals are to understand more about our species in the caribbean and in the gulf of how healthy they are and how they might be responding to some changes that are occurring uh, one of the things we're going to be investigating is how sediment might influence corals. And if we do have any dredging activities that occur or removal of any sediment uh, for ship channels, how detrimental is that to corals? Because we really don't know. For Caribbean species, we're, we assume it's this amount, but we really don't know if that is the true amount or if they're more sensitive to that. Wow. So we're wow. going to we're gonna do that. <laughs> we're going to try. We're going to try. It's going to be successful. It's keeping corals is just like having a baby and they need constant attention. And mm-hmm. what I'm really excited about though, is for students on campus and other people to actually see corals in alive yes, instead of sure. seeing skeletons or photos of corals, we'll actually have them 
inside of Aquaria where they can come see them, which I'm really, really excited about. That's awesome. Well, um, I think that our team is probably going to have to come over and and check it out. So (laughs) we'll come invade your lab one day. Perfect. Awesome. Well, Keisha, thank you so much for for coming and being on the Gulfstream today. Um, This was such a pleasure to have you. Thank you for having um, me. I'm really excited to see um, what's what's going on next in in your lab. Yeah, a whole bunch to come. Lots of lots of work, but it's going to be really exciting. Awesome. Well, thanks, Keisha. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Gulfstream. If you enjoyed this episode, you can help make a difference in the Gulf by contributing to the Heart Research Institute for Gulf of Mexico Studies research and efforts to create healthier coastal and marine ecosystems. Visit heartresearch.org. That's H-A-R-T-E research.org for more information. Please note, the views and opinions expressed by guests of the Gulfstream do not necessarily reflect the views of the Heart Research Institute for Gulf of Mexico Studies or Texas A&M University Corpus Christi. It is our mission to be an honest broker, providing only science-based solutions to Gulf of Mexico problems and other environmental issues. This podcast is intended to provide our guests with a safe and open forum for them to express themselves freely.